With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Kirk Willison, Vice President of Government and Industry Relations for ArchMI and a mortgage veteran with more than 25 years in government relations. Kirk is also the host of PolicyCast, a podcast focused on what's happening in D.C. related to housing. And today we'll be talking about how the industry is effectively lobbying for some changes while hitting a roadblock on others. First, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, talking to Desmond Smith, Chief Growth Officer at UWM, about SafeCheck. Desmond, how does SafeCheck work? Hey, Sarah, how are you? So I would say first, you know, SafeCheck is allowing uh, LOs to give their bars peace of mind. So let's start there. You know, trigger leads have become a very large issue, not just in the mortgage space, but in any time someone's getting any type of credit. So we created SafeCheck to help prevent kind of that um, aggravation and nuance of receiving, you know, tens, twenties, hundreds of calls that consumers receive. So what happens with SafeCheck is any LO who uses UWM, it's an exclusive product SafeCheck is to UWM, they would be able to either pull a single or tri-merge soft pool credit report, and while that credit report is being used to run AUS, they will have time to opt their consumer out of any solicitations, and then therefore they will not receive all of those annoying calls and annoying solicitations. And that is also a big benefit because the, the cost of the credit bureau is much cheaper by leveraging SafeCheck. So it really is a win um, for LOs, and it's obviously a win for consumers so they don't receive so many phone calls. Um, offering all different types of products and services. I can see how that could be a game changer. Thank you, Desmond. And listeners, you can find out more at uwm.com. Kirk, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Sarah. Thank you very much for the invitation. No, it's great to have you on. I am an avid listener of your podcast, the Policy Cast. I learn a lot from that, and um, I just love the way that you interview, especially um, you know people from the government. You've got your your hand on the pulse of many of the things that are happening in our uh, industry as well. So it's a it's a pleasure for me to have you on. It's great. It's really great to be here, and it's it's been a delight to try to do these podcasts over the last couple of years. So I wanted to start out with a little bit about your background. How did you get into the industry? How did you, you know, get to where you are now? It, it probably all started. I, my, my first crack at the financial services industry uh, was doing public relations work for the American Bankers Association. Uh, and my function there was to really advocate on the public policy side uh, for the government affairs agenda of, of the ABA. And that goes back to the, uh, the, the mid-1980s. Uh, and, and after that, uh, I got hired as a lobbyist out in San Diego for a bank called Home Fed Bank. It was one of the largest savings and loans at the time 
Uh, and like, unfortunately, so many savings and loan eventually succumbed uh, and became a part of the, uh, the Resolution Trust Corporation. Uh, and, and, and after that, uh, I had really the good fortune of, uh, of doing much the same work at Countrywide Home Loans. Uh, worked in Countrywide's offices in California for a couple of years and then was asked to come back to Washington and create a, uh, a Washington office, government affairs office for, for Countrywide. Worked it all for, for eight years at Countrywide, then worked over in the, a similar capacity on industry relations uh, at Freddie Mac. Uh, spent really the bulk of my time, 14 years at, at Freddie Mac, and uh, eventually three years ago uh, came here to Arch Mortgage Insurance uh, as head of government in its relations at uh, Arch. Great resume. Um, you have been in and around the Beltway and understand that. So this is my first question to you is, what do you think that the mortgage uh, industry, either that's lenders, servicers, um, you know, appraisers or those entitled, we have this big industry. What do you think they don't understand about Washington, D.C. and the way things work there? Well, I, I think one of the things right now certainly is that uh, the partisanship on Capitol Hill is so intense that uh, the likelihood of getting anything through Congress that would be favorable or even unfavorable to the, the mortgage industry is slim and none. Uh, and I know that each time, you know, the, uh, the, the Mortgage Bankers Association has its annual advocacy and a lot of fly-in uh, uh, take place from other trade associations. And a lot of the focus does seem to be on Congress. Uh, but my, my focus would be, uh, or at least recommendation, talk to the regulators. Make sure you understand where the, uh, the, the government banking agencies and the FHFA and HUD are coming from, because it's much more likely that housing policy is going to be set uh, at the regulatory level as opposed to in Congress. That is an amazing insight. I think that's so true, especially right now, to your point. How has that changed since the first time you know you started working with legislators? Well, again, I, I think back then there really was a, a willingness for Republicans and Democrats to work together. And also, frankly, when I first started, uh, the, the Democrats had a significant control of the, of the House of Representatives and the, and the Senate. The Senate began to flip a little bit, but the, and, and until the, uh, the, the mid-90s, the, uh, it was a dream for Republicans to ever control the, the House of Representatives. So it wasn't as quite contentious in trying to figure out, can you get the necessary votes to get anything through? Uh, it, back in those days, it was just how do you persuade a committee to move legislation? And then the likelihood is, is once it passed out of committee, it was going to get to the floor and, and pass there too. Uh, so it's, it's, we, we've seen just this narrowing of the political gap between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and it looks that way. It's, it's going to be that way for some time to come now. And, and it's going to just make it very difficult uh, to get things through Congress. And we're going to be looking at whoever is the administration uh, to really set housing policy, I think, for some time to come. You know, it's uh, we've definitely noticed that as well. So that, you know, in the past, we might be like, oh, my gosh, this this bill just got introduced. This is a housing bill. We need to talk about it. It's like, what are the chances this bill even gets out of committee? But if it does, how does it pass the other, you know, the other um, uh, house? If it's in the Senate or the or the House, the the chances of something getting through are so slim. Well, so I would turn the the question back on you and say, what do you think those in D.C. don't understand about the mortgage industry? 
Well, you know, okay, so let's start again back with, with, with Congress. You're dealing, most of us, when we go up to Capitol Hill, are dealing with people who are young staffers, relatively young staffers, uh, who have probably never been able to buy a house in the Washington, D.C. market because their salary just doesn't provide for that. Or they're pretty young and they haven't really developed, a, you know, a, a family situation where you're going to be looking for a, uh, a home ownership situation. So I think part of it is, is just that understanding of, of the process of getting, the cost of getting into a home, the challenges that families in the, the so-called hinterlands face in trying to uh, become homeowners for the first time. Uh, so I think that's that's certainly a, a challenge. A member of Congress is much more likely to understand, but you know, sometimes getting in to visit with a member of Congress is the challenge in and of itself. Uh, so, so I think that that is that, but I think that people do need to be re- reminded all the time of the value of, of home ownership and, and how that the, the contribution home ownership brings to uh, a local economy in, in terms of construction of new homes, in terms of the, the durables that people buy when they become homeowners, the fact that they become much more civically engaged when they own their own home as opposed to rent. Uh, those are things that constantly be needed to, to re-educate, uh, particularly, you know, uh, the, the average longevity of a member of Congress right now is very short. Uh, about 50% of the, uh, the members of the House of Representatives have been there just a couple of terms. That's really, um, I would think that's a challenge that I don't even think about that often. It's just that when you have that kind of turnover, you're starting, you're starting from scratch. This isn't a person who has, you know, and they have so many issues, you know, their housing is just one of them. That's right. And, and I tell you what, so one of the things that, that, that I've done at Arch, and, and we've done three of these just in the, in the last uh, six months or so, uh, and, and we've created what we're calling affordable homeownership roundtables, where we go and meet with the member of Congress in their district. And we, for example, earlier in, in February, we met with Warren Davidson, the new chair of the Housing and the Insurance Subcommittee. And, and what we did is, is we brought together realtors and home builders and lenders and appraisers. And we just sat down for 90 minutes with the chairman and we talked about housing and the challenges of affordable home ownership in his district and the, the barriers and potential solutions. And we, we replicated that in a couple of different places. We did the same with, uh, a, a new congresswoman from Indiana, Erin Houchin represents actually just the other side of the river from uh, Chairman Davidson, and then with um, uh, Wiley Nickel, a, a new freshman uh, Democrat from uh, suburban Raleigh. So uh, we, we think that this is an opportunity for us to really get, gather the entire housing ecosystem together uh, and to share the, the common uh, challenges and barriers uh, and, and really get a, a sense of solutions for a wide variety of uh, different interests. And, and the one thing that we found is that Home ownership is valued, whether we're a Democrat or a Republican. And the solutions to an affordable housing challenge uh, doesn't seem to come from one party or, or another. And they're open to getting ideas from all comers. I think that that is sort of our uh, secret sauce right now, right? I mean, like, and those members of Congress certainly have family members who are being shut out of homeownership, who have, um, you know, locked in a low rate and are going to stay there forever. I mean, they 
this is an issue they can understand on one level, just because we all have family members. We all are, you know, um, have different homeownership experiences ourselves, but this is definitely bubbled to the top of the, you know, the consumer conversation. So it's not just like some, you know, out of the way conversation happening. Exactly. So when you um, think about regulators, I think one of the things that the mortgage industry can really feel is that like, here are these people who seem, um, you know, I mean, they're not the enemy at all, but like they might be, they might not understand what priorities we have. And I think especially in this particular time when, so you see something like, um, you know, regulators really uh, being pretty tough about the buybacks, right? About about uh, what they're looking for in loans. And, and seemingly, um, they would say no, that they're just doing exactly what they've always done. But the FHFA... Um, you know, uh, regulations or, or what they're looking for on that so that Fannie and Freddie are being very strict about buybacks at a time when that is going to tank some mortgage companies because there's just from a market's perspective, there's no way to do that. Um, or, or when they are like, okay, we're rolling out this new thing. And it's like, why are you doing that now when there's so much pain in the industry? And so I would love your uh, sense of like, how much do regulators think about where the industry is right now from an economic standpoint? Yeah, you know, um, so, so let, let's think about the, the LLPA changes uh, that were made at FHFA. And, and let, let's particularly focus in on the, the 40% DTI situation where, where FHFA initially proposed that there be higher LLPAs, loan level price adjustments or upfront pricing, uh, for any loan that would exceed a, a 40% debt to income ratio. Uh, and the, uh, the, the industry immediately pushed back against that. And it wasn't so much because they didn't recognize that higher risks existed, but it was the operational challenge. It was a situation where a, a borrower may uh, perceive themselves as being below a 40% DTI, uh, when they come into the application process and then find out at the, uh, Toward the end, that actually the way that the uh, their debt to income has been calculated, it exceeds it, and now they're going to be faced with a a different interest rate altogether. Um, the administration uh, actually listened, uh, and I think that this was a combination of, of again the Mortgage Bankers Association this time going to Congress and not asking for a legislative solution, but asking members of Congress to contact regulators and say look at this from a different perspective. It looks like a bait and switch situation. It's an operational nightmare for the industry. And the FHFA did some recalculation, recalibrating, and decided to uh, to pull back on that change. Uh, so, so I think that th- there's a situation there where the industry collectively got together and did a really good education job. Didn't, you know, shoot uh, from the hip. They, they, they put their, their, uh, Arguments out front met directly with uh, the the leaders over at FHFA, and uh, I have found certainly during the time that uh, Sandra Thompson has been in office uh, that that her and and her staff are very open to listening and, and making adjustments as needed. I think that is a perfect example of how to get something done. Um, to your point, like um, it was very strategic and they had to act in a very quick amount of time. I mean, to in order to stop that from going into effect as soon as possible, this was not a, a you know, they didn't have a long time to strategize. 
No, 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 they, they, they didn't. And, and they really got their ducks in a, in a row very quickly. And, and now, uh, just in this past week, we've seen the proposal out of the, the banking regulators when it comes to higher bank capital levels, uh, the so-called Basel III endgame uh, that was just proposed. And as it turns out, the nation's largest banks, about the, the nation's top 30 banks, uh, are going to be faced with significantly higher capital standards for uh, residential mortgages. So I think that we are about to see a, uh, a, a redux of the situation that we just saw with the OLPAs, that, that the banking industry, this time is a little broader than just the MBA, uh, is going to be articulating uh, a need to say, wait a minute, are, are these changes really necessary? I mean, what, what we're seeing is on, on some of the, um, the higher risk loans or the higher LTV loans, that it could double the amount of capital that banks currently have to set aside for those type of loans. And that is going to have really negative ramifications for the more affordable, that the, the, the minority, the lower income uh, levels of, of borrowers uh, and actually, and ironically, this administration has been uh, very active in trying to grow uh, homeownership. I agree with you. I also think that, you know, when we first looked at that, um, you know, Basel III changes, when it was rumored, like, here's what might be coming out, we thought, well, maybe that's going to be good for IMBs, not good for big banks, but not, it's not, it's actually, uh, it could be bad for everyone <laughs> looking well, I mean, it could be good for IMBs. I mean, if, if it forces banks out of the business altogether, then the remaining IMBs are, are going to be taking the lion's share of, uh, of mortgages. Uh, but is it really good for the country to begin to see a limited number of people who, who are uh, kept out of housing? For, for example, you know, the, the, um, the banks that are participating have created their own special purpose credit programs. They're likely to portfolio those loans. And if those loans become too expensive for them to portfolio, they'll they'll decide to get out of mortgages and focus their uh, their efforts uh, in other arenas of, of assets. Now, on the, on the other hand, um, at, at Arch and, and with a number of other companies in the insurance and the reinsurance business, we think it's a, a really strong opportunity for bank regulators to give serious consideration to giving banks uh, capital relief for actually transferring some of their credit risk, whether it be residential mortgages or whether it be credit cards or autos or whatever, uh, much in the same way that the GSEs have been very successful in reducing their own risk by transferring credit risk to private investors. What do you think the odds of that? Uh, I mean, is that is there a receptive audience for that? Where are we in that process? We've, we've had a number of meetings with uh, the OCC, with the Federal Reserve, and with the FDIC about the concept. Granted, we started probably very, very late in the process and didn't get anything in the original uh, Basel III, no language that, that would permit it. Uh, there's a couple of hoops that, that need to be uh uh, hurdle for this. And and and, and one of the, the barriers is uh, we are very interested in offering a reinsurance option, uh, just like, again, the GSEs. When, when a GSE is looking to transfer credit risk, they have two ways of doing it. They can go to the capital markets, uh, and, and what they do is a CAS or the stacker proposals at, at uh, Fannie and Freddie, respectively. But they also have reinsurance options. Uh, as it stands now, an insurance company isn't considered an eligible guarantor uh, for a bank. Uh, we, so some language needs to be changed for that. 
Um, but we do believe that that there is support on Capitol Hill. We think that there is support among um, the, the constituencies in the affordable housing arena uh, that would say, hey, if this is an option for banks to lay off credit risk and still be participants in the, the affordable home ownership uh, focus of, of, of loans, uh, that we may be able to gain some traction, but but it's going to be a hard uh, a hard lobbying effort. Uh, but we're, we're expecting that we're going to be up to the challenge of it. It's such an interesting uh, balancing act, right? I mean, so anytime you want to expand home ownership, you do have more credit risk potentially, right? Because if if those people were in their normal credit box, they could they could already you know be accessing that. So anytime you do that, but but as you said, this administration has had a huge focus on uh, affordable housing. And I feel like because of the market situation, we have more lenders interested in affordable housing, right? And reaching those borrowers that maybe they weren't that interested in when you have, you know, a refi boom and you're uh, up to your ears and in, in loans you can do. So I think it's a, a confluence right now. I, oh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is where the business is moving. Uh, and, and the fact that uh, the growth in home ownership is, is largely going to be the minority community, uh, Latino, African American, Asian Americans are going to have the majority of the loans of the next decade. Uh, so it makes just perfect sense for, uh, for lenders, both banks and IMBs to really start looking very closely at how they market what kind of products and services they can offer, what kind of education they can offer to expand home ownership opportunities. And, and the same is true for, um, for mortgage insurance companies for that purpose. I think one of the things that the industry felt when, especially with Basel III and, and, and just in general, like uh, the DTI um, conversation, uh, is that like there's less risk now. There are so many things that you just can't do now. You're not, we're, we're not relitigating 2008. Those, those loans just aren't even possible at this point. So with less risk, why would now be the time to introduce some of these things? I think that's a really a very good question. And, and, and all the analysts that I've been reading, particularly about the changes, uh, in, in the Basel, uh, are perplexed, uh, and, and to, to essentially make the U.S. banks have twice as much capital for residential mortgages that their international peers are, are faced with doesn't seem to make much sense. And, and uh, reading between the lines, it, it sounds like there could be enough opposition uh, that uh, some of that might be rolled back a little ways. But uh, again, it, it, it's going to be a, a, a tough case. You're, you're going to have to have a lot of outreach to the regulators uh, from, from not only the industry, but housing, consumer advocates as well, all working together uh, to make the case that this has serious ramifications for the future home ownership opportunities for people uh, in the very near future. You know, our lead analyst, uh, Logan Motoshami, points to the bank failures as one of the, you know, things that happened, one of the surprise things that happened this this year economically, you know, nobody saw that coming necessarily. Uh, it was a surprise and, and the ramifications of that in the, in the eyes of regulators and, and what they need to do, right? What, what do you think that looks like? Well, I mean, I, I clearly, uh, you know, Logan's right. I mean, it, it was a surprise. It was also just, you know, it was a failure of management in this case to mismanage their, uh, their, their liabilities and their assets. Uh, it was a failure of the regulatory agencies to really not have a closer look at these. I, I think this is still more anecdotal than it is uh, systemic. 
most banks aren't doing that. And I think the, uh, the shockwave since that time has uh, resulted in banks doing a better job of trying to make sure that they match up their, uh, their, their outgo situations, uh, as well as begin to say, maybe we shouldn't have quite as much uninsured deposits uh, as we had in the past, too. So uh, sometimes, you know, these, these things are healthy. Uh, and and they, they they show that the uh, the capitalist system can can work. You can get a, a failure or two, uh, and it can help straighten out the market. When you look at you know, um, you, we talked about the short tenure of some people in Congress, right? We're we're coming up on an election year. It's it's amazing that those things happen so fast. <laughs> seemingly, how do you how do you gear up for like, you know, it, it could be a completely different change. I was. Um, I had I was the magazine editor at Housing Wire um, when uh, Trump when the Trump election happened when he won um, that election and we had a whole a whole uh, you know it, it, no one knew who was going to win but um, it was it was kind of a shock and so we had a whole thing and then we're like okay regulatory wise because we had a looking forward you know it was at the end of the year looking forward magazine here's what to expect from a regulation perspective for like okay scrap that, start over. And, and really that's yeah. what the industry had to do with that because you had an, an administration come in that really had different priorities. Um, you know, you could feel some whiplash again when the Biden administration came in. Every every administration has their own priorities. How do you, how do you prepare for that looking forward even um, this close? That's yeah, truly when it comes to the, the administration is a, it's a huge challenge. There even had been, if you look back, there had been a, a little comfort uh, for those of us in the housing industry because organizations like uh, the FHFA and the CFPB had directors in place for a five-year period of time, and it didn't necessarily uh, align with a, a new administration coming in. Now, thanks to a couple court cases, both of those positions uh, are purely political now. Uh, and we saw what happened when the Supreme Court uh, decided that the FHFA director served at the pleasure of the president and could be removed from job at will. That very day, uh, Mark Calabria was told that he would not be staying in that job. And Sandra Thompson was appointed very soon after as acting director and then eventually uh, uh, was nominated and affirmed by the Senate to be the director. Uh, so we could have, again, wholesale changes when it comes to uh, to housing policy, the one the one thing I will say is this: is um, toward the end of the Trump administration, in fact, in the very last week of the Trump administration, it uh, produced its uh, kind of a long-awaited report uh, called "Eliminating Regulatory Barriers for Affordable Housing," in which case it advocated many of the same things that six months later or so. The Biden administration uh, included in its own housing supply action plan. So there is at least when it comes to to growing uh, the housing stock, there is some agreement. I, I think the, the around the edges is where you get uh, when it comes to fair lending, uh, when it comes to the the push for um, for equitable housing. Uh, I, I think that that's where there's definitely some differences be, between political parties. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, following the, um, the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, uh, I was told that there will be legislation introduced, uh, at least in the Senate, perhaps in the House as well, that would essentially target the, the equitable housing finance plans that the GSEs have come out with 
which were designed to, to grow minority homeownership, uh, suggesting that that is a, uh, a wrong tactic for anything that is part of the federal government. Wow. That is, uh, that could be, that could be significant right there. Because one of the things I think of is like, you know, any, any change in DC takes a little bit of time. And one of the things you have is, you know, you have the FHFA being the regulator of Fannie and Freddie, but Fannie and Freddie are, have, are, are stalwarts. They've been around for a long time. You have people in those leadership positions and also stay there for their whole career, as you know. And, um, <laughs> you know, they're, and in some ways they stand as a, um, sort of a barrier against like whiplash because it's like, it takes time to implement even things that they're, you know, they have to do, there is a timeline there that can be helpful for industry trying to, you know, uh, adjust to, to quick changes. Absolutely. It's kind of like steering the the Titanic, you know, it's, it's, it's a very slow process. uh, Even if the, uh, the the change eventually gets there. Uh, And we've actually seen that, you know, we, even with the, the, the equitable housing finance plans and the duty to serve plans that, that have come out, um, and, and it's taken them a couple of cracks. They, they initially introduced their equitable housing finance plans for, for three years and then amended them. Uh, the, the most recent duty to serve plans uh, took a little longer than usual because uh, the, their, their first uh, submission to uh, Director Thompson, uh, she kind of rejected them and sent them back and told them to make them a, a little more robust. Uh, so, yes, it, it does take a little while. Uh, but again, you know, if a new administration does come in and it takes a very hard line compared to uh, the, the progressive uh, proposals that we've seen from the Biden administration, um, it could certainly hasten uh, some of the, uh, the changes that we've seen. And, and the special purpose credit programs uh, may have to be withdrawn a little sooner than what one would uh, expect. But it will certainly impact the lenders down the line who are basing a lot of their programs, a lot of their outreach based on what they're uh, hearing from the GSEs. I mean, this is one of the things, if you're a lender and you're trying to project out five years, even you're like, uh, there's going to be a middle, uh, an election in the middle of this that could, that could change some of these priorities um, and, and really change some of the supports that you currently have. It, it, it really is. And, and, and uh, I mean, I, I won't speak necessarily on behalf of any particular trade association, but I will say that it is important uh, for, for lenders to stay engaged. And, and that would include, you know, whether it's the, the American Bankers Association or the Independent Community Bankers or the Mortgage Bankers Association or the, the Housing Policy Council. All these organizations do a really good job of keeping members informed and then trying to put together their best minds uh, to make sure that they advocate on a, on a policy basis. And, and uh, one of the things that, that I've tried to do at, at ARCH is certainly educate our own employees, but but through the, the capital commentary and the, and the policy cast is to really take that a step further and, and, and really educate uh, the, the mortgage professionals out there about some of the risks that they're likely to face in, in the near future. Because I've just felt that an educated uh, mortgage professional base uh, makes the entire industry stronger and, and better and, and more able to adapt to change than uh, might otherwise be the case. Kirk, you're doing a great job with that. Thanks so much for being on. It's been a great conversation and we will have you back again soon. Sarah, it's been great to see you. Thank you very much. It's been a fun visit. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. 
and make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.